This podcast is made possible by the generous support of Lilly Oncology. Hello, everyone. I'm Jamie DiPolo, Senior Editor at BreastCancer.org. We're podcasting on location at the 2018 American Association for Cancer Research Annual Meeting in Chicago. My guest is Dr. Uthura Nair, a Research Fellow in Medicine at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Harvard Medical School, and the Broad Institute of MIT in Harvard. A cancer biologist, her broad research focuses on the interface of basic biology, targeted medicines, and drug resistance. She's presented research looking at how acquired HER2 mutations can make some metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancers resistant to hormonal therapy. Dr. Nair, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be here. So how common is it that hormone receptor positive breast cancer becomes resistant to hormonal therapy? So uh, patients with early stage breast cancer that is hormone receptor positive are usually effectively treated with hormonal therapy. However, patients with metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer, which is late stage disease, who are still often effectively treated with anti-hormone therapies initially, will go on to develop resistance to those therapies in virtually every case. In fact, the biggest cause of breast cancer mortality in the US is currently due to resistance to hormonal therapy in patients with hormone receptor positive metastatic disease, and that's to the tune of more than 20,000 deaths per year. So as you can imagine, it's a very pressing issue to try to understand the causes of this resistance. And when that resistance happens, is it to all types of hormonal therapy, you know, tamoxifen, aromatase inhibitors, basildex, is it everything? So actually, the type of resistance mechanism that develops seems to depend on the type of hormonal therapy that the patient received. Um, So for example, we know that patients who received aromatase inhibitors, which deplete circulating estrogen in the body, Um, in at least about a quarter of cases become resistant by developing mutations in the estrogen receptor itself. So just to note that if I say ER, I'm referring to estrogen receptor. Um, So we think that that this is because such mutations in the estrogen receptor allow the estrogen receptor to continue signaling in cells without depending on the presence of the hormone, which is estradiol or estrogen. So those patients, luckily, still often respond to other types of anti-estrogen receptor that is anti-hormonal therapy, um, such as Fazlodex. Um, because Fazlodex, for example, acts by degrading the ER itself. So that effectively makes the presence or absence of an ER mutation effectively irrelevant. Um, however, patients who develop resistance um, through methods that don't involve the estrogen receptor may be cross-resistant to several different types of hormonal therapy. And in fact, in up to 75% of cases of resistance, we don't currently know the mechanism. So how did the idea for your study come about? So my principal investigator, Dr. Nikhil Wagley, leads a large clinical sequencing study in Dana-Farber Cancer Institute's Center for Cancer Precision Medicine, which aims to do something pretty ambitious. Um, Specifically, this is a multidisciplinary team of clinicians and investigators that has invested a significant effort in developing a more systematic framework to characterize metastatic tumors from patients with metastatic breast cancer more intensively. So um, as part of this endeavor, we attempted to study tumor evolution by performing whole exome sequencing. Okay, I'm going to stop you. I'm sorry. Okay. Can you explain to us what whole exome sure. sequencing is? <laughs> I know because we, 
we talk a lot about genetic testing and genomic testing mm -hmm. of tumor tissue, and this seems to be a new phrase that's becoming more prevalent throughout the research. Yes, um, I'll try. Okay. <laughs> Whole exome sequencing will fall under the banner of genomic testing. So it's basically a technique in which we can characterize all of the 20,000 genes in the human genome within the tumor sample. So basically what we end up doing is extracting DNA from tumor biopsies, and then we capture only the parts of the genome that code for proteins, and that's what makes it whole exome sequencing as opposed to whole genome sequencing. Nice. Um, and then once we sequence those, those are compared to the published human genome. Um, to analyze that, we have computational biologists in our group who use software to test the quality of the sequencing data, um, after which they will deploy other computational analysis tools to determine the actual genetic changes in the tumor compared to normal cells from those patients. So our study added another layer of complexity onto that in that we compare, compared sequencing results to those obtained from earlier stages of the disease, that is before they had developed resistance. So in that way, we were able to identify only those genetic changes that were acquired as the tumors developed resistance. So when you were looking for those mutations, mm -hmm. did you have an idea that they were going to be HER2 mutations? Were you looking specifically for those, or were you just looking for any mutations? Well, um, I would say that the overall initiative is pretty agnostic. Um, so we were essentially looking for any kind of genetic change within the resistant tumor that may hypothetically be able to confer resistance to target therapy. So for example, if a resistant tumor amplified a specific oncogene, which was not present in turn in the original tumor, in that case we could conceivably imagine that that amplified oncogene could play a role in resistance. So um, the reason we actually zoned in on the HER2 mutations in this study is that out of all of the genetic changes that we identified in resistant tumors, the acquisition of HER2 mutations was one of the top candidates statistically, um, and also it never co-occurred in resistant tumors that had ER mutations. So I just wanted to clarify again and to try to break down what I mean by that. So we know that ER mutations confer resistance, and also we know that they occur in a fairly large number of resistant tumors, a quarter is quite a large percentage. So therefore, the fact that the tumors that we found to have HER2 mutations once they were resistant never appeared to have ER mutations in the same tumor suggested that they developed the HER2 mutations as an independent mechanism of resistance, which is why we decided to follow up on them. So if I understand correctly, let me make sure I get this, mm -hmm. your results are suggesting that some metastatic breast cancers, they're continuing to evolve these new mutations as they're being treated mm -hmm. because the cancers were not HER2 positive when the people were diagnosed. Yep. So is this... Is this something that's been considered, thought about a lot before? Is this something relatively new that is being studied? So um, I wouldn't want to take credit for the idea itself that tumors evolve because um, there's, there's consensus within the scientific field and among clinicians that metastatic breast cancer can continue to evolve new mutations, especially as they're being treated and acquiring resistance to therapies. But for various reasons, um, institutional limitations or other limitations, patients' tumors are not usually regularly sequenced as they're being treated. Um, and in many cases, they may not even be sequenced at all. Um, so in fact, breast cancer treatment is often tailored on the basis of the initial tumor characteristics only, even though the tumor may be actively evolving. Um, there's one other 
point I wanted to dwell on, which you mentioned in, in your question that these tumors were initially HER2 negative. Um, so I wanted to note they actually do remain HER2, so they were not HER2 positive when they were diagnosed, and in fact, even all of the resistant tumors that we found with HER2 mutations would still be classified as HER2 negative by pathologists. Oh, really? So, yeah. Oh, okay. So, in fact, the only way that you can detect these mutations is by performing sequencing. I see. So it's not mm -hmm. something that if, if you did a regular tumor test or another path report on it, exactly. it still wouldn't come back. You would not have noticed that. I see. Yep. Oh, that's very, very interesting as yeah. well. <laughs> so if the resistance to hormonal therapy is caused by these HER2 mutations, and your study found that you could overcome that, though, which mm -hmm. is a good thing, yes. by a combination of Neuralinks and Faslodex. Yes. <laughs> so how did you come up with that treatment combination to see if it would work? Did you okay. try a bunch of them, or and that one just happened to work, or mm -hmm. how did that happen? We did, we did try a bunch of different inhibitors, um, and I, actually most of them did not work. Okay. But there was a specific reason we focused on Neuralinks. Um, um, so Neuralinx, which is also known as neratinib, as you may know, is, is, is part of a class of HER2 inhibitors that directly inhibit the kinase domain of the HER2 molecule. Where, where Neuralinx differs from other HER2 kinase inhibitors, um, such as Tycurb or Lapatinib, is that it's irreversible, which means that once the drug binds to the molecule, it's permanently inhibited. Uh, we selected this treatment combination because a couple of the mutations we had identified had previously been characterized in terms of their responsiveness to other anti-HER2 inhibitors, and at least one of them we knew did not respond to the other inhibitors. So, and that included Tycurb. So, on the other hand, all of the mutations that we identified had been previously found to be sensitive to Neuralinks. So, in terms of what you're wondering about whether other HER2 therapies would work in these patients, um, it's possible that another HER2 medicine, such as Herceptin, um, may work for some of these patients, depending on which specific HER2 mutation they had in their tumor. But um, I would stress that at this point, we don't have any laboratory evidence that the, these tumor cells bearing these mutations can be inhibited by those drugs. So at least currently, we think Neuralinks or something similar to Neuralinks would be the most comprehensively effective inhibitors for these mutations. Now, um, in terms of how we came up with the combination of Fazlodex plus Neuralinks, um, this is a, a very complex question. So essentially, there's, there's a lot of evidence from cell lines um, that in breast cancer cells, there may be extensive crosstalk between ER and HER2. So for example, um, as you know, breast cancer type in general is determined on the basis of whether the tumor is ER or HER2 positive, while there is a subset of cases that express both molecules. And additionally, in some ER-positive breast cancer cell lines, when you suppress ER over long periods of time, the cells upregulate HER2 and thus become dependent on HER2 signaling. So similarly, we imagined that um, in cases where the ER-positive tumors had developed activating HER2 mutations in response to ER suppression, if we inhibited only the HER2 mutation with Neuralinks, we would eventually provide an avenue for the tumor to revert back to ER dependence. That's why to achieve maximal tumor suppression, we hypothesized that we'd need to simultaneously inhibit both ER and HER2 with the Fazodex plus Neuralinks combination. Um, and indeed, as you mentioned, this was the most effective and the only effective combination against ER-positive tumor cells with the HER2 mutations. That's pretty fascinating. <laughs> so finally, to me, you know, your study was small, I get it, it's early. <laughs> um, it does suggest that 
you know, these breast cancers, the metastatic breast cancers are continuing to change genetically in response to treatment. Mm-hmm. So to, to me, the question is then, does it become feasible that cancers should be sequenced in an ongoing way as part of treatment to make sure that people are getting the best treatments? Um, the short answer, uh, especially from our group, is definitely yes. Okay. Um, because we do know that ER-positive metastatic breast cancer evolves. We know that the mutations that are acquired can be relevant for resistance and can direct enlo- enrollment on clinical trials. So we just we think that there's really great value in performing genomic and molecular and pathological characterization of tumors as an ongoing part of treatment. Now, the reason this may not be widely adopted so far is that there may be a concern on the part of many physicians that repeated sequencing of a tumor may be more trouble than it's worth. Um, I think that's for a couple of major reasons, the first of which is that repeated biopsies are invasive, and they're painful for the patients. Um, and secondly, since we may not know the significance yet of any genetic changes that we observe, or worse, we may not be able to use any information we discover to tailor treatment for the patients, um, there's concern that, you know, would this kind of repeated sequencing actually achieve any sort of improvement in clinical outcomes? So in response to the first issue, there are newer technologies such as liquid biopsies, in which we can sequence circulating tumor cells within a vial of blood from a patient instead of performing a traditional biopsy. And currently, there are many scientific groups working on understanding how best we can use these to predict the evolution of the tumor. And there's a lot of hope that we can soon reach a point where these can be used to tailor therapy. But um, specifically where our study comes in is to provide evidence rebutting the second concern, um, the issue of the usefulness of the resequencing. So in our study, not only were we able to identify oncogenic activating mutations that weren't incidental and actually directly conferred resistance to the therapy that the patient was currently on, but these were actually mutations for which effective inhibitors were currently available. That is Neuralinks in this case. So it demonstrates sort of the power and the validity of this approach, since these patients can now immediately be directed to new treatment strategies or clinical trials that test combinations that we think may be effective. Um, And actually, anecdotally, um, one of the patients in our study who developed one of the HER2 mutations that I'm talking about was actually directed to a clinical trial testing the combination of Neuralinks plus Faslodex, and she actually went went on to respond to that combination for a good period of time. So finally, this, this study also suggests that it may be worth treating patients with effective combinations upfront, which, which may, we don't have evidence yet, but it may prevent these kinds of mutations from even emerging in the first place in the tumor. Um, so I just I want to say ultimately, you know, that's the entire purpose of this kind of study, which is to be able to deliver better precision medicine. Right. That's, that's fascinating and so interesting. Thank you so much. It sounds like this could have huge implications. It's it's early, mm-hmm. and you know people need to look at this and understand it. Absolutely. Um, but it it does sound like this could have a, a lot of implications for treatment. We hope so. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> we wonderful. think so. And yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me again.